Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Daniel chapter 5 detailed how God warned Belshazzar, the Babylonian leader, by miraculously writing a message on the wall of his palace that Daniel interpreted to mean God had measured Belshazzar and because he'd been found lacking, his kingdom was to be divided between his enemies. That very night on October the 13th, 539 BC, the city of Babylon fell to the Medes and Persians, which were to two regional tribes who had formed a somewhat unequal alliance in order to attack the city of Babylon. Belshazzar was slain and Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian began to rule the region. Now, as we look at chapter 6, we're not told how long these events took place after the Medes and the Persians' victory, but it is thought that they may have occurred before the decree of Cyrus was issued, which enabled some of the Jews to return home to rebuild God's temple in Jerusalem. Look at verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So Darius quickly took control of the territory of Babylon by setting up 120 satraps or officials across the land. In addition, he appointed three regional governors or commissioners over them, of whom Daniel was one, even though Daniel was around the age of 83 at this point. We are told that he did this to keep the satraps honest so that the king might not suffer loss. It's very clear that the new leader is a little distrusting of the people he had appointed to leadership, but he quickly identified Daniel as a man of integrity. We know from when we met Daniel in chapter 1 that not only was he quick to understand, very early on he also determined in his heart to walk in God's ways and not defile himself. He started out in Babylon at around the age of 15 by living an honourable life and here, toward the end of his life at about 83 years old, we see Daniel acting in just the same way as he had begun. Daniel was consistent in his integrity, and we're told in verse 3 that again Daniel distinguished himself above all others, and because of his exceptional qualities, the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. One can only imagine how the others felt about that. After all, Daniel was so different to them. Worse yet, they knew that with someone so moral in charge, there would be no opportunity to line their own pockets or to feather their own nests. Notice it was not only the satraps who were riled, the other commissioners were also against Daniel. Look at verse 4. 
At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Once they knew of Darius's plan to increase Daniel's authority, the other politicians did their best to find something to accuse him of. They tried desperately to find some sort of charge against Daniel that would stick, but no corruption was found in him, for Daniel was entirely trustworthy. Not only was he honest, but he was careful and focused in his work too. He was diligent. It soon became obvious that they were not going to be able to find him at fault in any way, and they realized that their only hope to get rid of him was if they could somehow bring his commitment to God into conflict with his commitment to the king. In Scripture, we're clearly told that as followers of God, we are to submit to the authority over us. For example, in Romans 13 verse 1, we're told that everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for God is a God of law and order. However, we're only to do that as long as our obedience to the authorities does not clash with our devotion to God's commands. Should there be any conflict, we must obey God rather than man. For example, in the New Testament, the ruling council in Jerusalem banned the apostles from preaching in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John disobeyed the human authority over them and did it anyway. When the high priest reprimanded them in Acts chapter 5, he declared, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. There are similar instances in the Old Testament too. For example, when God's people were in bondage in Egypt, Pharaoh ordered the Jewish midwives to kill all the male babies at birth, but they did not obey the authority over them. In fact, Exodus 1.17 tells us, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Why did they do that? Because Pharaoh's command conflicted with God's law, and because their allegiance was first to God, the midwives lied to Pharaoh, saying that his policy was unsuccessful because the Hebrew women were so strong they gave birth long before the midwives even arrived. We're told in Exodus 1.21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. They put God first, and he blessed them as a result. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, of course, had done the same thing when they chose to face the furnace rather than to bow to the gold image on the plain of Dura. They disobeyed the authority over them because they honored God above every earthly king. These officials here in chapter 6 knew that Daniel would do the same. However, because Daniel had already won Darius's favor, they first had to agree upon a plan to trick the king. 
Verse 6. So the administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. It was a lie to say that all the officials had agreed that the king should make this edict, for at the very least, Daniel hadn't agreed to their plan. What they ask Darius to do is important, for not only do they suggest that prayer only be offered up to Darius himself for the next 30 days and that those who refuse be put to death in the customary manner of the Medes and the Persians, they also specifically ask Darius to issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered. Previously, the Babylonian kings had ultimate authority. It was said of Nebuchadnezzar, for example, whomever he wished he executed, whomever he wished he kept alive, whomever he wished he set up, and whomever he wished he put down. That was in Daniel 5.19. But the empire of the Medes and Persians was different. Their kings did not have absolute power, and so once something was signed into law, it could not be repealed. Even the king himself could not change it. These unscrupulous government officials knew that. Darius did not realize their deception and probably thinking that the act would unite the people he ruled and that it would establish his authority over them, he signed the written decree. So what would Daniel do when he learned of it? Look at verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. It's very clear to us here that Daniel knew about the decree and yet he returned to his home and there facing toward Jerusalem, he continued to get down on his knees three times each day, giving thanks to God and asking for the Lord's help. I want you to notice, though, that what he did was in accordance with what he had done before, since the early days of his captivity. Sometimes people look at this and think Daniel was willfully trying to make a point, and they miss the fact that what Daniel did that day was no different to what he'd done every day since the beginning. The Jewish people were to pray three times a day, in the evening when their day actually began, then again in the morning and then at noon. Additionally, on the day that the first temple had been dedicated in Jerusalem, King Solomon instructed in 1 Kings chapter 8 that whenever God's people were in distress, when their cities had been besieged and they had been taken captive, if they could not come to the temple itself, then they were to 
to face toward Jerusalem each day and spread out their hands toward the temple as they prayed. Daniel was merely being obedient to God's word that had come through his forefathers. He did what he always had done, and though he changed nothing, it's also worth noting that he hid nothing. He did not close the door or go into his closet and hope that that would count. He followed God openly. He appealed to God for mercy. He implored for God's favor on his people. And that's why it is believed that this was likely shortly before the decree of Cyrus, because you see Daniel petitioning God while facing Jerusalem, asking that the Lord would not only forgive, but that he would fully restore the Jews to the land he had given them. Now, as we look at verse 11, notice that before telling the king about Daniel's non-compliance, his accusers make sure to get Darius to confirm that not only did he sign a decree that was punishable by death, but also that decree was unchangeable according to the law. Verse 11. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is is one of the exiles from Judah pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Suddenly Darius realized what they had done and how they had deceived him, that their plan had never been about uniting the kingdom. It had always been to make an end of Daniel. And it becomes clear what a great effect Daniel had on this pagan king, for not only is Darius greatly distressed because he had unwittingly fallen into their trap, his sole focus and labor concentrated on how he might be able to deliver Daniel from the judgment. All the other affairs of the kingdom lay unheeded as he tried to find a way to spare his friend. Of course, the conspirators were getting worried about exactly what Darius might do. Seemingly concerned that he would somehow find a way to overrule them, they agreed to approach the king again to remind him of the unchangeable nature of the law. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. The king had tried his best, but in the end there was no legal way for him to save Daniel. All Darius could do was hope that Daniel's God would deliver him. After all, he knew that Daniel served his God continually. 
It amazes me the impact Daniel had on this king. And we must ask ourselves, do we have the same kind of impact on those around us? Like Daniel's friends before, God did not spare Daniel from the trial. Rather, he protected him through it. The lions used in the Medes' executions at that time would have been kept in an underground pit or cave that likely had a side entrance as well as an opening at the top through which food could be thrown in. Once placed inside, it was impossible for a person to get out. In addition to that, according to verse 17, to ensure no one interfered with Daniel's sentence, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, which was then sealed with the king's own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles. These lions were not fed very often. They were kept on the edge of starvation, ready for whatever or whoever came their way. However, it is interesting that the story does not focus on what took place in the lion's den that night, but rather on what took place in the king's palace. Darius returned to his royal chambers and refusing all of the nightly food and entertainment, instead he spent the time in torment worrying about his friend. Verse 18. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lion's? Sleep had eluded him, and as soon as dawn began to streak the sky, the king ran to what many believed was Daniel's sealed tomb. He cried out with distress and pain in his voice, inquiring if Daniel's God had been able to deliver him. Imagine his shock and relief when Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found in innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den, and when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. It amazes me how calm Daniel is. When my husband and I lived in Africa, we used to go on safari, and I can never forget how one morning we came upon two male lions sitting next to a pool in the early light of dawn. We parked our vehicle as close as we could to them, and after some time, one of the males got up and roared, and let me tell you, that is something you just don't ever forget. A male lion's roar can be heard up to five miles away. Sitting as close to him as we were, I can tell you that just the sound of it was terrifying. It was so powerful that the noise actually made my chest vibrate. Daniel is still in with those hungry lions, and yet he does not cry out, O king, get me out of here! 
No, we find him as respectful as ever, politely addressing the king by saying, O king, live forever. He explains that it is by God's power that he has been saved. But you notice that in verse 22, when Daniel says that he was saved because I was found innocent before him, it becomes very plain that Daniel was not worried about what people thought of him. He cared only about what God thought of him. The king was overjoyed to find Daniel alive and immediately had him lifted from the den. Like Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, when they came out of the furnace unharmed, Daniel was retrieved from the pit without a scratch on him. He believed in his God and his trust of the Lord was proved by his obedience. It may be hard for us to imagine, but during the course of the night, I do not believe that Daniel had been perfect on a rock, staring at the lions. If anything, Daniel was looking up through the hole in the roof to his God. And in our own trials, so should we. As we continually serve the Lord our God, he is able to protect us, no matter what terror we may be called upon to face. It is not to say that every faithful servant is delivered. We have to be like Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, willing to follow God irrespective of the outcome. But we can trust our Lord who has our very best at heart and who will use every circumstance for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Darius realized he still had a significant problem that needed to be dealt with. There was, after all, the matter of the officials who had deceived him. Verse 24. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. There is a lot here that we must note as being of real importance. We are never told that all of the 120 satraps and two other governors were also involved in the scheme. In fact, it seems likely from Daniel 6 verse 6 that if they were lying about Daniel being in agreement with the need for a decree in the first place, they may also have been lying about other officials being in agreement with it too. What's important here is that those men who had falsely accused Daniel are the ones to be judged. It does not seem that all of the officials were dispatched in this way. Here, we actually see the truth of Proverbs 11 verse 8 that says, The righteous is delivered from trouble and it comes to the wicked instead. You know, it may seem cruel to us that the families of the conspirators were also destroyed along with them, but unfortunately that was also the law of the Medes and the Persians, and those who deceived the king knew that. They had also been well aware of the fact that the law of the Medes and the Persians could not be changed even by the king. So they were the ones who had made the decision to put their families in jeopardy. 
It's worth noting that it would have been against Jewish law to do that because God said in Deuteronomy 24.16 that it is unlawful to punish the children for the sins of their fathers. These pagan tyrants, however, had a different view of the matter. To them, it was easier to bury bodies than to keep looking over your shoulder for potential assassins. If the wives of the conspirators had been left alive, well, women talk and they influence others. If the children had been left behind, they might easily avenge the deaths of their fathers. If anything, one might see God's mercy in the fact that their deaths were extraordinarily quick. It was all over before they even hit the floor of the den. I want you to know that in the past I have been asked how to answer those who doubt the story, thinking that perhaps Darius somehow had protected Daniel after all. There are those who wonder if the king had Daniel smuggled out of the lion's den in order to protect him, or if he had arranged for the lions to be fed so that they would leave Daniel alone. Let me point out a few things, though, in answer to that. First of all, there were the seals on the stone that made tampering impossible. Not only was the king's signet ring involved in that, but also those of his nobles. In addition, there is the anxious behaviour of the king. If he knew that Daniel would be found alive in the morning, there is no way he would have run down to the den in the way that he did, because it just wasn't a kingly thing to do. And the lions also had obviously not been fed because when the conspirators and their families are thrown in, they were particularly ferocious. Daniel, the Mede, was so affected by all that happened, we're told in verse 25, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed, his dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. In a similar way to Nebuchadnezzar so long ago, this pagan ruler sends out a message to all about this God of Daniel's. He declares that all people are to show reverence and respect for the God of Daniel. And look how he describes him. He is the living God. In other words, Daniel's God is a God who interacts with mankind. And his indestructible kingdom endures forever. This remarkable God is involved in the lives of those who serve him, and he is able to save all those who trust in him. For the second time in the book of Daniel, one of the most powerful men in the world at that time praises God largely because of the influence and faithful work of God's servant, his ambassador, Daniel. The challenge to us is, is our walk with the Lord as consistent as his? 
Should we ever suffer unjustly in any way because of our stand for the Lord, we need to remember that we are in the Lord's care. He will work out his purposes in our lives. And no matter whether we face a fiery trial or a trial with real teeth, we can rejoice for never will he leave us, never will he forsake us. And we will not have to exact revenge, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that's found in Romans 12 verse 19. He is able to make us prosper like Daniel, even in the most unlikely of circumstances, if only we will keep our eyes fixed on him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the testimony of Daniel, who was so faithful throughout his life and who constantly looked to you, whether he was praying in his room or whether he was in the lion's den. Lord, I pray that likewise we would look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, in no matter what circumstances we face or whatever we're called to go through. Lord, our prayer is that we would look to you and that you would give us a testimony to share with others to the goodness of the Lord. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.